So I want to talk about this concept of modeling the true heart of a leader. And uh, you'll see what I mean by the time we're done, because we're going to end with the leadership uh, model, the leadership example that Jesus does. And it's pretty powerful. But before that, uh, as we're heading towards uh, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, something really big happens uh, with two disciples. And I want to read you this story. This is the, the glorious transfiguration. This is not a story talked about too much. And if it is, uh, I think it's been underplayed. And the only reason I say that is because I have underplayed it. I have not seen the depth of what this miracle and what this presentation is all about. Um, we, we do know that through some of the stories we covered in the last five weeks, there's some pretty wild miracles. Like we saw pe- people getting healed. And by the time you see some of the other miracles, you go, that's easy. That, that's, a, that's all small-time stuff. And then he walks on water, which freaks them out. And then, you know, the dead guy being raised from the dead, you know, popping up on his way to the cemetery. Um, Lazarus coming out of the tomb. These are pretty significant miracles. We're seeing all kinds of miracles. But this was also a miracle, And we don't see the story as a miracle. We see the story as just another part of God trying to reveal something. But it is a miracle because they're involved in it. All the participants are. So let's take a look at Matthew 17. uh, And we'll just kind of rip through it. I want you to see a couple things in this story. Six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, Jacob or James, uh, and John, and hiked up a high mountain to be alone. By the way, that James is the uh, Jacob is the correct name uh, from the Aramaic and Hebrew. Uh, it's just been translated into uh, um, uh, James, but it's Jacob. Um, they hiked up a high mountain to be alone. So that's how the story starts. So only two disciples went, not the whole crew. But I thought I was part of the group. You know, if, what, what would the other disciples have said when they heard about this? How come I got left out? You were snoring. What? You know, like they, they were, who knows why they were invited and went along. I don't know. But they're heading up a mountain. Why would Jesus go up the mountain? Same reason we have observed through all these messages so far. His father told him. It doesn't say it in the text, but if we look at the pattern of what's happened here, this is Jesus abiding in the Father every moment of the way, and he's told, go up that mountain. He might even have said, bring those two. Notice Peter, sorry, sorry, Peter and the two, um, um, never mind, moving on. Then Jesus' appearance, this is where the miracle happens. Then Jesus' appearance was dramatically altered. A radiant light as bright as the sun poured from his face and his clothing became luminescent, dazzling like lightning. He was transfigured before their very eyes. Then suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and they spoke with Jesus. So, up a mountain, right? I bet you somebody down below is going Light! Or maybe somebody saw a shooting star. Who knows? But there's something super, super bright going on here. Where else in the scriptures do we see a story of somebody becoming translucent or a glory, hint, hint, that comes about? Who, who, who has that in the presence of God? Moses. Okay? You all knew that. You just need your second cup of coffee. It's fine. But there's two things here. The light... And it also says in some translation that that light 
enshrouded all of them. So all of them were in that light together. Uh, they weren't, it wasn't the disciples, the three of them sitting outside and uh, um, looking in. They were participating in it and were so in awe, so in shock. And then two people show up, Moses and Elijah. My question is, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I remember his picture, I saw it on Facebook. No, they, how would they know? Yeah, mind you, this is all hindsight now, right? Because this story is written later. <laughs> you do get that, right? It wasn't written at the time of the story. So here are these two figures. And then it says they spoke with each other. How long? Yo, yo, okay, done. No, they, they had a, some kind of conversation because that's how Jesus rolled. So all these guys played a significant role in this. And I want to take a highlight, sorry, two key things, this transfigured thing. Moses also went up Sinai's mountain and received an impartation of glory. His face shone and had to be veiled because it stuck. Now, I didn't see anything about uh, Peter and Jacob and John or James and John having to cover their heads uh, in this story because the glory was too bright. That didn't happen here, but in this picture it did. So the transfiguration of Jesus is also part of our destiny for the same Greek word is used twice for believers. And I know some of you are going to go look this up because you're going to go, what? i got to see that for myself. That's fine. Go ahead and look. Um, th this is uh, uh, believers being transfigured by the renewing of our minds. That's in Romans 12. And by the glory of Christ within us that will complete our transformation into Christ's image. And that's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Look those up. There's some similarities here about being transfigured transformed, transfigured, brought into the glory, transformed into the glory of Christ. It's a beautiful picture of what was going to happen. Now Moses and Elijah, this is the part that blew me away. Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. Both Moses and Elijah were associated with Mount Sinai. Mountain. And here, where do they go? Up a mountain. Each one of these three stories, Elijah, Moses, now Jesus, on a mountain, something quite significant. Both had a ministry of performing astounding miracles, and both had unusual circumstances surrounding their passing from this life into glory. There's something big about these two guys showing up with Jesus. Let's find out what it is. Peter blurted out, Lord, it's so wonderful that we are all here together. If you want, I'll construct three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I guess they knew. They somehow have this knowing. Maybe the glory of God gave them the knowing of who these two characters were. And the key is blurt. Because that's how Peter rolled. Once a Peter, always a Peter. <laughs> okay? He stuck his foot in his mouth. He just oops and said what, because he, he spoke, he thought with his mouth. Do you know anybody else like that? Anyway, um, this, is, this, <laughs> this, this, is, this is huge, because he, he doesn't know how to react. We don't know how to always react. And some react by blurting, usually saying something stupid, and they get trouble, in trouble for it later. Others react by contemplating and thinking, Hmm, i got to think this one through, and who knows? We all have different reactions. We all have different personality styles. But while Peter was still speaking, a radiant cloud composed of light spread over them. 
enveloping them all. And God's voice suddenly spoke from the cloud saying, This is my dearly loved son, the constant focus of my delight, or whom my favor rests. Listen to him, or constantly listen to him. God speaks. When was the other time he spoke? No, when, when was the other time he spoke to Jesus? When, when did God's voice come out? At the baptism. That's right. There was a glory that came down like a dove. Here there's a glory that, of light that comes down, and it's not just on one person. It's on all of them. And God says to them, this is my son. This is the one. This is my delight. This is my joy. I'm so proud of my boy. Listen to him. You've been listening to the prophets and you've been listening to Moses for so long. Listen to my son. Yeah, I believe that this moment, a declaration was being manifested into the three disciples. And as they looked back, they began to see, oh my goodness, he is the one we are to listen to, not the prophets, not the laws, but the focus is now about Jesus because the law and the prophets spoke about and pointed to Jesus. That's why Jesus even told the, the Pharisees, you guys know the Bible inside and out. In fact, you memorize it backwards and, and you, you know every little thing here, you even know the nuances, you even know all the, and memorize all the stuff you guys added in yourself. You know, <laughs> it's all there. You memorized it, but you know it, but you don't know me, whom it's pointing to. The three disciples were dazed and terrified by this phenomenon. They fell face down to the ground. I would too. I'll bet you every single person here would go, what? Okay, we'd be freaking out. Uh, but Jesus walked over, and I love this. Watch the compassion. And he touched them, saying, get up. Stop being afraid. Why would he say that? I'm here. When you're with me, there's no need to fear. How many times are we afraid? Afraid in life, afraid of a circumstance. When the presence of Christ is in us, we need not be afraid. Remember the boat story? The, the, the storm on the water and Jesus is sleeping in a storm. So why are you guys afraid? Here again, why are you afraid? They're not getting it. They, when they finally opened their eyes and looked around, they saw no one else there but Jesus. As they all hiked down the mountain together, Jesus ordered them, don't tell anyone of the divine appearance you just witnessed. Wait until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Ding! Did you hear that? If you didn't, I'll do it again. Ding! This line is very important. He confirms and reveals, I'm going to die but I'm going to be raised. They didn't hear it. Watch. His disciples then asked him, why do all the religious scholars insist that Elijah must first appear before the anointed one comes? They didn't even mention. They, they, it was like it went right over their heads. You're going you're to die and get what? Raised? They didn't do that. 
they, right for the Elijah thing, maybe because that was their, in their consciousness, they'd just seen something cool, and Jesus answered them, they're right, Elijah must come first and restore all things, but Elijah has already appeared, and yet they didn't recognize him. So they did to him whatever they pleased, and the Son of Man is destined to suffer the same abuse as what they did to him. Oh, did you catch the second ding, ding? And the Son of Man is destined to suffer the same. He is warning them, warning them. It's not like he didn't tell them. Then the disciples realized that Jesus was referring to John the baptizer all along. It was John the Baptist that was the Elijah that was prophesied that would come. Well, then we have this wonderful story. And uh, uh, that's what today is about. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and ooh, and all the wow, and the celebration, and the crazy dancing. That was really fun with the kids doing their little thing. Uh, it was fun. When he arrived at the stables of Ananiah near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples ahead, saying, When you went to the next village, you'll find tethered there a donkey's young colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone stops you and asks, what are you doing? Just tell them, it is needed for the Lord of all. The two who were sent entered the village and found the colt exactly like Jesus had said. And while they were untying the colt, sure enough, the owners approached them and asked, what are you doing? And the disciples replied, we need this donkey for the Lord of all. Huh, isn't that a... Strange thing, you steal my donkey, you put my donkey back. You know, it didn't happen. Something happened, something was prepared, and it's very possible because of Jesus going around to all these villages, this is a familiar village, he'd been near it before. They may have known who he was, so it was not questioned. We don't know, there's lots of great guessing. The very next day, the news that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem swept through the massive crowd, gathered for the feast. This place and all the surrounding cities were packed for the big feast happening in Jerusalem. This, you couldn't have picked a busier festival event to come and have people join in, all the families and all the relatives, everybody's coming for this. So they all, uh, so they took palm branches um, and we'll talk about that in a sec, and went out to meet him. Everyone was shouting, Lord, be our Savior, or Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes, sent from Jehovah God, the King of Israel. Then Jesus found a young donkey and rode it, on, uh, into, rode it on to fulfill what was prophesied. People of Zion, have no fear. Look, it's your king coming to you riding on a young donkey. By the way, I switched uh, text if you didn't notice. It moved from uh, Luke to John. And then we come back down to uh, continue in John. But this idea of the palm, the palm branch is a very symbolic symbol. The palm tree is a symbol of triumph, victory over death. Palms grow in the desert and overcome the arid climate. Deborah sat under a palm tree as a judge in Israel and received the strategy to overcome her enemies. And Zechariah, conquering kings would ride on a war horse or in a golden chariot, but Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a domesticated donkey, he is the king of peace, not war. The symbolism is very important. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't fully understand the importance of what was taking place. But after he was raised and exalted into glory, they understood how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies in the scriptures that were written about him. Verse 17, all the eyewitnesses, 
of the miracle Jesus performed when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, kept spreading the news about Jesus to everyone. Remember, this place is packed. It's like the National Enquirer for Jews. It's just like, it just went, every corner stand, every tax collector stand, every place of meeting, every tree where people huddled around. This story was so big because nobody had seen anything like that. And the thing is, they heard about all the other miracles, but suddenly this is a person many people knew about. And so this was, this was fun to tell. I want to be part of the story. How many of us want to be part of the story? Have you ever phoned somebody and said, hey, did you hear? Because you want to be part of the story and share it with somebody else. It, it's just, that's what happens. We get excited about things like that. The news of this miracle of resurrection caused the crowds to swell as great numbers of people welcomed him into the city with joy. But the Pharisees were disturbed by this and said to each other, we won't be able to stop this. The whole world is going to run after him. This is the image of Jesus coming into town, riding on a donkey. They put their cloaks down. They put palm branches down. They wanted to make this uh, a huge triumphal thing. Now, it is possible Many saw Jesus not as the king of peace, but the conqueror over the Romans. Very likely that that was an underlying thought. Because this, this, what Jesus came to do is the exact opposite of what they were hoping for. They wanted to be free from the suppression, free from that bondage, free from the tyranny. Well, Luke 19, this shows you a heart of Jesus that should blow your mind. This is where compassion over compulsion hits. When Jesus caught sight of the city, he burst into tears, uncontrollable weeping over Jerusalem, saying, if only you could recognize that this day peace is within your reach, but you cannot see it. For the day is soon coming when your enemies will surround you, pressing you in on every side and laying siege to you. They will crush you to pieces and your children too. And when they leave, your city will be totally destroyed since you would not recognize God's day of visitation. Your day of devastation is coming. This is an odd thing because... There's noise going on around Jesus. And what's that noise? Celebrating, cheering. And he weeps. He sees the city of Jerusalem. And his compassion is moved because he's been given an inside scoop from his father. Remember, Jesus lived out of his humanity fully depending on every power, every piece of wisdom to come from his father who lived in him, who he was abiding in. So how could he know this? Maybe God pieced together the prophecies for him. And this did happen. And when did this prophecy happen that Jesus just finished weeping about? He saw into the future to 70 A.D., he saw the utter destruction of Jerusalem. The slaughter of men, women, children. And it's interesting if you look at Josephus, one of the great non-Jewish, non-believing writers, uh, who's a historian. He said many, many people died long before the Romans actually got into the doors, into the gates. 
They died of starvation. They died of diseases in because they had uh, sequestered themselves and protect themselves. And so by the time the Romans came in, I think it was, if I get the name right, I think it was Titus coming in, they were e uh, shooken up by what they saw, the horror of it. And they had to burn bodies in what place? Gehenna. Yeah, Gehenna. Uh, or some translations use the word hell. Interesting. Well, he gets to the temple. He entered Jerusalem. And the people went wild with excitement. The entire day was thrown into an uproar. Some asked, I'll bet you some of the Roman guards were thinking, should I take my sick day today? Oh, what was I doing? Some asked, who is this man? And the crowd shouted back, this is Jesus. He's the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then we have an incredible thing happen again. We saw it happen before where he cleared the temple. He does it again here. And he does something beautiful with it too. Upon entering, the, entering Jerusalem, Jesus went directly into the temple area and drove away all the merchants who were buying and selling their goods. He overturned the tables of money changers and the stands of those selling doves. And he said to them, My dwelling place will be known as a house of prayer, but you have made it into a hangout for thieves. He is ticked. And this next part, Lorinda showed me. I never saw it before. This is, this again, it's the Jesus thing. You're getting, you're, hopefully you're peeling back layers of this Jesus you, you say you knew and know, and you're finding even more really cool parts of his character. Wow, this is incredible. Watch this. Then, after that, the blind and the crippled came into the temple courts, and Jesus healed them all. And the children circled around him shouting, Blessing and praise to the son of David. Guess what happened? You can imagine what that'll do. But when the chief priests and religious scholars heard the children shouting and saw the wonderful miracles of healing, they were furious. Something's wrong backwards here. For my humanity. You see people getting healed. Everybody was getting healed in that court. So what has just happened, Jesus walked into the court... It's packed full of money changers and dove sellers and you name it and blah, 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 blah. He clears them out and now there is room. And who comes flooding into that same court? People who need healing. Which is what that temple was designed for. The compassion of Jesus comes. And yet the very leaders are furious. They see miracles happen they cannot deny. I bet you their job security was severely threatened and they saw it coming. Seriously. Uh, control pays. It makes money. You can make a lot of money in control. Hell makes money. You preach hell, you can, you'll, you'll rake in funds. You, there's, there's a lot of fear. You just motivate with fear and you can generate an income. Jesus didn't come to generate fear, but to give life and heal. This is my Jesus. The greatest leadership lesson, John 13. This is where things get beautiful. He's about to have the Last Supper. And so again, I invite you to come on Friday as we're going to enjoy communion together. 
So he got up from the meal, took off his outer robe, and took a towel, wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' dirty feet and dry them with his towel. When Jesus got to Simon Peter, he objected and said, I can't let you wash my dirty feet. You're my Lord. There he goes again. Should say blurted. <laughs> but again, this is, you're starting to see the character of Peter and how Jesus chose Peter, knowing full well what he was like. No one is without hope. No personality type is without hope. No misunderstood person is without hope. Don't dismiss anyone. Jesus saw this and even allowed him to have his little hissy fit. You can't do that. I got to do that. I'll be, I, it's me. You should wash yours. Jesus replied, don't you understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing? But soon it'll be clear to you. Oh, sorry, you don't understand yet the meaning of what I'm doing. So his mind was dark and blind to, the, to recognizing all these things. We get the benefit of hindsight. It's 2020. Peter looked at Jesus and said, you'll never wash my dirty feet, never. Why would he possibly say that? Give me an, an honest, practical reason why Peter would not allow Jesus to wash his feet. Bingo. Shameful. Do you ever have anybody else wash your feet? That's strange. I know the Brethren in Christ Church, they have these festivals. I forget what the feast is called. They, do you remember what that's called? The Love feast. And they do food stuff, and they, the men go in one place, the women in another, and they wash each other's feet as an act of service. And it's, it's intimate. Okay? When you touch somebody's feet, there's a, there's a touch there. Okay? Like, touch matters. And Peter's going, No! Revealing all of his baggage. Our first reactions are not always the right ones. And how many reactions has Peter had now? Two. Wrong ones. And yet, grace still wins. Grace still pours out love on Peter. It's not me, Lord. I'm not good enough. And Jesus is saying to himself, and he kind of said here, you don't get it yet, but you will. I'm seeing past your narrow picture of shame, which I'm going to heal anyway. That's how Jesus sees you and me. But Peter, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, Jesus responded, then you will not be able to share life with me. So Peter said, Lord, third time. Just heads up, third strike. There's a three pattern here with Peter's life. But anyway... <laughs> so Peter insisted, Lord, in that case, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands, my head too. Go big or go home. And Jesus said to him, you're already clean. <laughs> You've been washed completely. You, don't, you just need your feet to be cleansed. And that can't be said of all of you. As he looks around. For Jesus knew which one was about to betray him. And that's why he told them that not all of them were clean. After washing their feet, and I think Jesus washed everyone's feet, including the unclean one, knowing full well 
grace still is compassionate, still reaches out with the same unconditional love After washing their feet, he put on his robe, returned to the place at the table. Do you understand what I just did? Jesus said, you've called me your teacher and Lord, and you're right, for that is who I am. So if I am your teacher and Lord, and have just washed your dirty feet, then you should follow the example that I've set for you and wash one another's dirty feet. Now do for each other what I have just done for you. I speak to you timeless truth. A servant is not superior to his master, and an apostle is never greater than the one who sent him. So now put into practice what I've done for you, and you will experience a life of happiness enriched with untold blessings. Talk about the heart of the divine speaking through Jesus, instructing the disciples. Here, this is the example I've given you. This is how you lead, by being a servant. I've said this before, but there's so many conferences on leadership and developing leadership skills and becoming a person of influence and becoming blah, 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 grow this, grow blah, 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 blah. And there's not one on how to be a better servant. Foot washing, 101. Where's that? This lesson is deeply important for anybody who's trying to attain a position, power, or role. Your eyes are on the position, power, and role, not on Jesus. Because if you're going to attain that by his divine influence, he'll do it for you. You do not do it yourself. But I'm just reacting. I'm just, you know, I'm trusting Christ's life in me. <laughs> I'll try that too. Like, motives are brutal. Takes one to know one. The model has just been set. Even if you don't do it physically, but washing each other's feet, serving, seeing the other's needs before yours, doing a job nobody else wants to do, but trust in the indwelling life to do the thing that needs to be done, not out of compulsion, but compassion, non-judging. They don't deserve it. Look what they just did to me. Well, what did Jesus just model? Peter blurted three times, denies him later three more times, and I, I, I'm, I, I'm certain if somebody wrote a whole life story on Peter and just all the stuff he said and did, we'd be going, oh my goodness. It's very possible. There's enough given to us to insinuate that. 